Second Corinthians chapter one. The very next section, beginning in verse three, it says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will be partakers of the consolation. One of the reoccurring themes in Paul's second letter to the to the to the Corinthians is suffering and comfort And consolation. Again, it's the reoccurring question. Why must the righteous suffer? Before we ask the question about why must the righteous suffer, we have to ask the question, why do the wicked suffer? Well, wicked people suffer often because they make wicked choices and they come to wicked decisions. But what about those people who are faithful? What about those people who pray, who serve, who are walking with the Lord, who are being obedient? Paul is going to offer several possible explanations, one, that we might comfort others in verses one through seven, two, that we might have our soul dependence and confidence on the Lord alone in verses eight through eleven, and that we might claim the promises of God in verses twelve through twenty four. Paul speaks of the purpose of consolation and comfort in verses 4 and 5. And oddly, Paul will bring up the subject of fruit in verse 4, and then he will trace the root in verse 5, the fruit, that being the more we suffer, the more comfort that's available to us. And the more comfort that's available to us, the more we're able to give. The root, the more we suffer, the more God comforts us, the more we're able to comfort others. Now, again, we're not talking about some mere philosophical or theological treatment of the subject, but the raw, real ruin of pain and hardship. Paul is no stranger to pain and affliction And hardship. As a matter of fact, a little bit later on in the book of Second Corinthians, he is going to give a laundry list of things that have happened to him. He says in verse chapter 11, are they ministers of Christ? I'm speaking as a fool now. I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes above measure in prisons, more frequently in deaths, often from the Jews. Five times I received 40 stripes minus one. In other words, 39 lashes, five different times. Ordinarily, 
would severely cripple a man, possibly even kill him. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And we're not talking about recreational marijuana. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. Paul is going to offer his own life and his own experiences as a Tremendous principle. We live in a world of debilitating disease. We live in a world of tragedy, of trial, of abuse and death. It's one thing to talk about it and it's another thing to have experienced it for yourself. And some of you have. You know what it's like to bury that loved one. You know what it's like to experience that grief. You know what it's like to walk in a world of tears. And so Paul writes in verse 3, the source of comfort. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Paul begins with an amazing revelation. Andrew Murray put it this way. In Christ The heart of the Father is revealed, and higher comfort there cannot be than to rest in the Father's heart. So when he says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, don't let that word slip away from you. It's the word mercies. In the Greek language, it's oi, oi. Tier mon. It's the transliteration would be O I K T I R M O N. It means compassion. It means pity. It means mercy. Let me help you understand what the meaning of the word was in the first century when this was written. It was a word that meant to look on a person with a considered stare. And your immediate result is compassion and mercy. Again, it's like the images that you see on TV as a six-year-old and a seven-year-old. Their bright and their smiling faces flash before you. And your heart begins, begins to be filled with mercy and compassion as you think about their mother, their father, their grandparents, their brothers and sisters who have to bury their child. You hear the stories. I've had people come up to me and say, I can't watch the news anymore because I I can't stop crying. Why? Because God is filling your heart with mercy and compassion. And I'm going to suggest to you that maybe it's a good idea for you to stop watching the news. But when you get that feeling of mercy and compassion, that it motivates you to pray. That right at that very moment, you begin to pray for that mother, that father, that brother, that sister. The word means to look on people with need and compassion and mercy. But why is this important for you? Because the Lord God is described not as simply the God of mercies, but rather look at what it says. 
the father of mercies. In a very real sense, it's his nature and character to act toward us like a father. He is the father of mercy and compassion, showing mercy and compassion. Note the word mercies. It's plural. Our father doesn't simply respond with compassion and mercy once, but over and over and over again, prompting the question when somebody asks you, how do I know that God loves me? And how do I know that God cares about me? And how do I know that God has mercy and compassion towards me? Another way of putting it. How does God really Feel about me. The word mercy and compassion comes to mind. He looks down upon us and his heart swells. With a father's love. To forgive. To redeem. To reconcile. To comfort. Over and over again. And again, I want to draw your attention to the verb comfort. In verse 3, it appears three times. In verse 4, it appears four times. And then again, it appears once again in verse 6. It's an important word, and we're going to look at it, and so we need to understand what it means. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. It's the word para, kaleo. It comes from two Greek words, para, to come alongside, kaleo, to call out. Paul is very fond of this word. This word appears 103 times in the Greek New Testament, 54 times from Paul. Paraklesis is found 29 times in Paul's writings. John and James don't use the word at all. It is a word that means called alongside to help. It means to come side by side. The the image is of a person walking with another person and that person has been hurt and another person, they call out and the person picks them up. In other words, it means called alongside to help. It means to provide relief or support, consolation, but it it means way more than that. It expresses a kind of divine aid, of supernatural help, which is generously given to those who suffer. This is the reason why this is one of the major names of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. The Lord Jesus gives the Holy Spirit that title in John chapter 14, verses 15, 16, 17, 18. Remember where Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the father and he shall give you another comforter, parakletos, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and he shall be in you. 
I won't leave you comfortless. I will come to you. There is a supernatural agent that has been provided to come with you and inside of you. And so when Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of comfort. Is he, in fact, the God of mercies and the God of comfort? The answer has to be yes. In other words, he's not the God of distance and apathy and indifference. This is the God who is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's be blunt here for just a moment. How can we be sure that that Paul is describing God in an accurate way? What's the right answer? How can we be sure that Paul is describing God in an accurate way? Because of John chapter 14, verse 15. I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter. Is the God of Jesus different from the God of Paul? Did Jesus believe that the Father was a Father of comfort and mercies? Does Paul believe that the Father is the Father of comfort and mercies? Then how is it that you don't? How is it possible that you could even... For even one moment, entertain the idea that God is something different than how he's described by Jesus and how he's and how he's described by Paul. Now, think about it. It was God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was God who demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was the father who gave his son to save us. And if the father is willing to send the son to save you, how could he possibly forget to send the Holy Spirit to comfort you? No wonder Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins. And so this becomes an important thing for each and every person who's listening to the sound of my voice. If you know someone who's suffering, if you know someone who is hurting, if you know someone who is experiencing grief and loss, And disappointment. You need to be able to go. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It isn't simply to give them a theological lesson in the attributes of God. It's so that they would understand. That there's real hope. Do you know someone who's grieving? Do you know someone who needs spiritual medicine? Comfort. This is what Dr. Jesus orders. 
And look what it says. The Lord comforts us that we might comfort others in verse four, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Why do you suppose Christians and especially ministers face great difficulty? The answer is actually contained in this verse, in verse 4. You can only give what you yourself have received. And comfort is given in direct proportion to those who have received it. You can't drink from an empty cup. And you can't love from an empty heart. And you can't provide sympathy and comfort unless you yourself have been the beneficiary of such comfort. How can you give testimony to something that you've never experienced? Again, there's certain clubs that I don't want to join. I don't want to join the club of having lost a child. I don't want to join the club of Job. I hope and pray that I can live with the answer. I don't know how that feels. But I do know this, that there's a faithful and merciful God who is willing to give comfort. Note Paul writes, who comforts us. Look what he says in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. Paul isn't simply speaking of his own trials or his own setbacks or his own circumstances. He's willing to identify with the reality that we all experience trial and tribulation and loss. The older you get, the more you begin to realize that there's going to come a time when a mom might die or a dad might die. Paul isn't simply talking. Paul is reminding the people that he's writing to that there is rhyme and reason even in these setbacks. God comforts all believers. Now, I need you to understand this because there are some believers who are addicted to their trial. They're addicted to their sorrow. They're addicted to their pain. They're addicted to their tragedy and they won't let it go. Well, there's comfort for some, but there's no comfort for me. Haven't you ever read in the Bible that it says that Rachel weeps for her children and she refuses to be comforted? But I'm here to tell you that God doesn't play favorites. His mercies and his comforts are for everyone. We don't have to bear a single trial or difficulty alone. I don't want to tell my husband. I don't want to tell my wife. I don't want to tell my children. I don't want to tell the pastor. I don't want to tell my friend. I don't want to tell. But there comes a point where sometimes you have to divide the sorrow. I don't want to tell God. He already knows. Our Father, our Sovereign Majesty, is not living on some distant planet or some distant dimension. 
unable to provide his presence and unable to provide his strength. The the Bible says, is his arm short that he can't help? And I want to draw your attention to the word tribulation. It's a Greek word, philipsis. It's a word that means pressure. As a matter of fact, there's a word in our own language that we've come to use Almost like this word. We don't use the word tribulation very often in our common speech, but we do use the word stress. And that's actually the meaning of this word. And let me tell you why. Because stress by its very definition means to press or to press down. It is the pressures and the stresses of life. Those things that have great weight. And as you can imagine, weight comes in many different forms. And sometimes the weight is bearable. And sometimes the weight is unbearable. It's a crushing, pressing weight. And that's why we need the grace of God. By the way, both words translated tribulation and trouble in this verse, they're identical in the original language. In other words, the word tribulation and the word trouble are both flipsis. We might say those who are under any pressure. Those who are experiencing stress. Now there's good and there's bad about this. There is one type of person who experiences no stress whatsoever. That person's a dead person. Dead people are never under pressure and under stress. The very fact of living is going to bring with it at least some pressures. Blaise Pascal wrote, little things console us because little things afflict us. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment, because if you've ever felt a little pressure. When I'm feeling a little pressure, I go for my cup of hot tea. A little hot tea with some raw sugar, and just a little touch of half and half. Things get a little bit more difficult. I need red beans and rice. Things are very difficult. I need spaghetti with meatballs and sausage. So you probably have begun to realize that my drug of choice, Italian food. Different people have different drugs of choice. If Blaise Pascal could say little things console us because little things afflict us, is it safe to say that gigantic grace consoles us? Because gigantic sin afflicts us. And when there's great pain, there needs to be great grace. And when there's deep sorrow, we need comfort that is very generous. And so the Lord will use you as his advertisement. He will comfort you and you will be a living testimony of his gracious comfort. I don't want to. Really? But that's what Christians do. God comforts us so that we can comfort others. But you just said that the trial precedes the comfort. 
This is for the same reason I don't pray for patience. Because I know that the moment I pray for patience, God's going to make some terrible thing happen where I have to exercise patience. Well, that's exactly right. Because he's in the business of changing you. God comforts us so that we can comfort others. God carries us through trials so that we can help carry others through the trial. And now you begin to understand the statement, we divide the sorrow so that we can share the joy. God strengthens us so that we can strengthen others. God helps us so that we can help others. God encourages us so that we can encourage others. And that's why, again, Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 will write, Now we exhort you, brothers, warn those who are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient with everyone. There's not one size fits it's all warn certain people, comfort others, support others, be patient. Sometimes there's a strong rebuke that a person needs. Have you ever seen those movies where a person goes, snap out of it? Sometimes that's exactly what we need. We need someone to metaphorically Slap us. Now, let me just make sure, because this is being recorded. Pastor said we should hit each other. No, the pastor said be patient with each other and that it's a metaphor. I'm not recommending that you slap each other and say snap out of it. But the Lord comforts in doses equal to the suffering. And this becomes the important key. Look what it says in verse five. For as the suffering of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Do you know what Paul does? He goes to Jesus as the example. Jesus is our example. The sufferings of Christ become the standard, the measure in which to view our own sufferings. And I know what you're thinking. Well, it's an impossible standard because nobody's going to suffer like Jesus. That's exactly right. What kinds of sufferings did Jesus experience? Jesus experienced unimaginable horrors. Why? So he could become the perfect sympathizer in our sufferings. Well, what kind of sufferings did he experience? Well, he was born to an unwed father. He, he, was, he, was he was born to an unwed mother. I don't know who you are, and I don't care if you were born to an unwed mother. But it does present trials, doesn't it? His parents were poor. His life was threatened when he was just a baby. Think about it. He had to go into the witness protection program in Egypt. Until the powers that be decided to leave him alone. He grew up in a poor village. Under an oppressive foreign government. It would seem that his stepfather died early on and he had to become a provider for 
his mother and his family. He was raised by a single parent. He didn't have a lot of support during his ministry. He had no real place to call his home or to lay down his head. He was hated and opposed by the religious establishment. He was accused of mental illness and insanity. He was accused of being even possessed by demons. He was rejected and hated and opposed by the people who would listen to him. He was betrayed by a close friend. He was rejected, abandoned, forsaken by his friends. He was falsely charged, falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, beaten, tortured, killed, and not just any kind of death. I've seen some gruesome things in my life and some awful ways for people to die. But I can honestly say that there is no more awful and gruesome way to die than death by crucifixion. Now, each of these experiences reaches down to the depths of humiliation. And so Jesus reaches lower so that he can become God's sympathizer. You know what you can never honestly say to Jesus, really? You can never say to him, you don't understand. You might be able to say to him, you don't understand what it's like to be a sinner. And in a way you would be right, but in a way you would be wrong. Because Jesus, even though sinless, Paul is later going to write in this very epistle, he becomes sin. He who knew no sin will become sin so that we might become partakers of his righteousness. He never knew sin. So why should he have to be beaten? Why should he have to be tortured? Why should he have to be executed? Why should he have to die? Because guess what? The soul that sins, it shall die. He had absolutely no reason that he should have to die. And we have every reason why we should. He never experienced guilt. He never experienced shame. But he's allowed to experience estrangement, shame, mocking, humiliation, death. The writer of Hebrews says that he didn't Take on the nature of angels, but he took on the seed of Adam or Abraham. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like to his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. Disappointed. Rejected. Spurgeon said. We ourselves know by experience that there is no place for comfort like the cross. It is a tree stripped of all foliage and apparently dead. Yet we sit under its shadow with great delight and its fruit is sweet to our taste. How can you partake of fruit from an empty tree stripped of its foliage? Well, that's easy. When the fruit is life. Spurgeon also said it will greatly comfort you if you can see God's hand in both your losses. And your crosses. 
That's the key. Can you see the Lord? Not just simply in the losses and in the crosses. Are you able to see the hand of God even in the pain and the sorrow and the trial and the disappointment? Because the Lord is going to use suffering to motivate and provoke us. Look what it says in verses 6 and 7. Now, if we are afflicted, it's for your consolation and salvation. And again, it's not suggesting here that you're saved by pain. Or that you're saved by trial or it's saved by tribulation because salvation can mean many different things depending on the context. Here it means rescue. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Do you understand what he's saying? What he is saying is we are afflicted in order to impart to you comfort. And redemption, salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Paul is arguing that his affliction is for their benefit. I know what you're thinking. Well, it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel like my trial, my tribulation is for anybody's benefit. Nobody seems to be benefiting from my trial. But Paul is arguing that's because you haven't allowed the trial to do what the trial is supposed to do. To experience his grace and his mercy and his comfort. What happens when you suffer? Well, some of you, unfortunately, the answer is you become selfish and self-centered. You feel sorry for yourself. You feel self-pity or apathy. Or you feel the desire to have the full attention of everyone around you. Or you become bitter. Will Rogers used to say, people that pay for things don't complain. It's the guy you give something to that you can't please. So what has God given you? Everything that pertains to life and godliness and the knowledge of your Savior. What has God given to you? Grace and mercy and peace, forgiveness and love and redemption and reconciliation. What has God given to you? Do you complain because your wife doesn't cook like your mother? Does she complain that you don't make money like her father? Yes, behind every successful man is a woman complaining that she doesn't have something to wear. You see, some men complain about everything. Even the noise that comes when opportunity is knocking. Because your trial is going to become an opportunity that most of us will waste. But some of us will realize This is an opportunity 
for me to love the Lord. This is an opportunity for me to trust the Lord. This is an opportunity for me to rely on his comfort and strength. This is an opportunity for me to depend upon him. I wrote down just a list and we're, we're going to go over them as we continue our study. But I wrote down a list. Suffering is used to increase our awareness of the sustaining power of God. To whom we owe our sustenance. Psalm 68, 19. God will use our suffering to refine, perfect, strength, and, and keep us from falling. Psalm 66, 8 and 9. Suffering allows the life of Christ to be made manifest in our mortal flesh. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Sec- suffering will bankrupt us in making us dependent upon God. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Suffering will teach us humility. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. But for some of us, we won't learn the lesson. Note. When Paul says affliction and comfort are for the same purpose. Look what look at that. Affliction and comfort are for the, for the same person. Purpose. God will use both suffering and comfort to accomplish something. What are they? Number one, God will use suffering to stir consolation or comfort in others who suffer. And number two, God will use suffering to stir salvation. Let me tell you what I mean by that. A person who trusts God today must also learn to trust God tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. Let me just be blunt. Can a person who is unsaved, trust God for anything? That's the right answer. The the right answer is no. Because the unsaved person won't trust God for salvation. They won't trust God for forgiveness. They won't trust God for reconciliation. So how are they going to be able to trust God for the daily circumstances that afflict each and every one of us. And so sometimes God will use suffering to wake a person up, to come to a place of emptiness, ruin, dependence. The Bible wants us to bless the Lord at all times. That his praise should be continually in our mouth. The person who knows God and trusts God will trust him when the times are good or the times are bad. In difficult circumstances or tragic circumstances, whether it's suffering or health, whether in acceptance or rejection, whether in persecution or favor. Can you imagine the person who says, I'm in jail. This must mean God hates me. I guarantee you that the the pastor in the Iranian prison is not saying that right now. As a matter of fact, one Iranian pastor wrote a note. I think I have it here. I tried to get it. Yes. Jailed Iranian pastor. This is another one. Binam Irani, who last month was denied hospitalization despite his critical condition, wrote a letter from his prison cell before Christmas. 
This is last week, ministering to Christians in his country and thanking God for letting him share a very little of Jesus' suffering on the cross. The Christian Post reports, quote, despite the pressure and difficulties in prison, I am pleased to share what is like a fountain, my Christian joy with you. In the new Christmas days to come, wrote Irani, who is currently serving a six year sentence. My brothers and sisters, I love you all. Christ has given you to me on Calvary. Even if I were sentenced to many years behind bars for the salvation of one of you, there would never be a complaint, unquote. Before his arrest in 2011, he was arrested for acting against the interests of national security. Irani was leading the church of Iran in a city called Karaj. He had been he was found unconscious in his prison cell, raising fears for his well-being. His wife and two children have said they're afraid that unless the beating stop and he's offered medical care, he's going to die in prison. Yet suffering hasn't robbed him of his joy. Here's what he wrote, quote, I congratulate all the saints at Christmas. And the coming new year. Can you imagine In an Iranian prison. Can you imagine? You're experiencing difficulty and trial and pain. But Paul understands something. What is the point? The point is that the believer sees the believer being comforted through some suffering. And here's the key. We are motivated to continue in our faith. What? Wow, all I did was lose my job. This guy's in jail. Hey, all I did was this or that. We begin to put things in perspective. We will continue in the way of salvation despite the circumstance, despite the trial, despite the suffering. No wonder Jesus says, but he that shall endure to the end shall be saved in Matthew twenty four thirteen. He's not saying that endurance saves you. He's saying that the kind of faith that saves you endures. Do you have are you able to perceive the difference? You see, this is the difference between faith and saving faith. Endurance is simply the evidence of saving faith. God uses suffering to stir to to stir endurance. Let me just be as simple as I possibly can be. When we suffer, we allow God to comfort us. When we allow God to comfort us, we encourage others to endure in their suffering. The Lord will sometimes use suffering so that we will, again, divide the sorrow and share the joy. So believers who are bitter and discouraged and apathetic and complaining... They won't allow God to comfort them. And therefore, they won't be able to comfort others. But Paul is going to write that our hope and our expectation from every believer is to comfort in trial. And how can a person share the comfort of God if they refuse to experience the comfort of God for themselves? So it might come as a shock and a surprise to you. That God expects us to bear suffering. Why? To receive God's comfort. Why? To give God's comfort. Why? 
to encourage people to persevere. Why? Because persevering faith becomes the signal of saving faith. Why? Because we're to be the source of ministry and comfort and help to others. Why? Because that's why God saved you. Well, what if I don't want the job? Well, then you really need to examine yourself of whether or not you're a Christian. I'm not talking about some sort of sadomasochistic desire to endure trial and punishment and suffering. We live in a fallen world and will never escape the consequences of sin. And it is true that some people suffer more than others. But it is always true that the real Christian will allow suffering to invite comfort so that comfort received is comfort given. God expects us to bear suffering and receive his comfort. Other believers expect us to bear suffering and receive comfort. This is a reasonable hope. This is why Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. If there be any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, that means heartfelt expression. It doesn't mean the stomach flu. If there's any bowels and mercies, the reason why they would say bowels and mercies, because in those days, when you felt something, you felt it in your intestines. You felt it viscerally. Have you ever heard someone say, I feel like I've been kicked in the gut? That's what he's saying. That you feel it all the way down to the gut. Fulfill my joy, he says. Be like-minded. Have the same love. Be of one accord. Be in one mind. And in verse 7, And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that you are partakers of the sufferings. And also you will partake of the consolation. William MacDonald wrote, The apostle now expresses his confidence that just as the Corinthians had known what it means to suffer on behalf of Christ, so they would experience the comforting help of Christ. Suffering never came alone for the Christian. They were always followed by the consolation of Christ. So we too can be confident of this as the apostle Paul was. The Apostle Paul is in effect saying, we've suffered, and so have you. Because we've suffered, we're able to bring comfort and hope. You've suffered, so we think that we can experience comfort and hope. Annie Johnson Flint wrote this poem, Hands and Feet. She said, we are the only Bible the careless world will read. We are the sinner's gospel. We are the scoffer's creed. We are our Lord's last message, written in deed and word. What if the type be crooked? What if the print be blurred? For some people, they'll never go to church and they'll never read the Bible. Our friend Levi Lusco's daughter died earlier this week. Five years old, asthma, fatal. He has to bury his little girl. He taught on Sunday and on Christmas Eve. 
Someone watched it and said, I don't know how he is able to speak without simply breaking down and crying. You know what he said? I was watching the children. Images who were slaughtered in Newtown. And the thought crossed his mind. Dear Lord. I can't even begin to imagine what it's like to lose your child. And then he related. I now have have some understanding. I know what it's like to experience grief and sorrow. But I also understand what it's like to know and to trust and believe in God's plans and purposes and faithfulness. J.H. Jewett said, God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. And so now you know why 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is the prescription for comfort. Abraham Lincoln said, to ease another's heartache is to forget one's own. Some of you are familiar with Amy Carmichael. She was a missionary in India. And she wrote, Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascended star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, And pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? For some, that's exactly what you need to show. The scars. Because they tell A story that no amount of words can tell. And so, you have a choice. When the Lord gives you a trial, a tribulation, you can embrace it and receive comfort or reject it and lose the opportunity to give it. There's so much more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Even this tiny introduction to this tiny book, Lord, we see in it medicine, a prescription for hope. That, Lord, through that fuzzy fog that we call trial, tribulation, loss, and pain that Lord there is a tiny 
bit of sense being made. And Heavenly Father, again, we do not invite unnecessary trial, unnecessary temptation, unnecessary tribulation. But Lord, we understand that perhaps in the school of obedience, we too, like our master, may be called upon to know him and his sufferings. And so again, Lord, we pray that we could divide the sorrow. Again, that we could share the joy. Again, that we can partner with our brothers and sisters who find themselves in chains. That we can comfort those who in grief need a little helping hand as they stumble either towards the grave or away from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.